All right, here we go. Welcome to the 1,000 Hours Outside podcast. My name is Ginny Urich. I am the founder of 1,000 Hours Outside. And back for the third time, third time's the charm, Joel Salatin, welcome. Thank you, Jenny. It's just always an honor and a delight to be with you. I am beyond thrilled to talk about your brand new book. It's called Homestead Tsunami, Good for Country, Critters, and Kids. I feel like this is one that, you know, people could just sit and talk about for days and weeks and months. There was so much in there. I loved it. When I go and I read a book for a podcast, I take notes and I write in the book. And, you know, I usually have just, you know, little notes. And But like this book is filled with like, wow, whoa, whoa, wow. Just so many things that I never even considered. So many things that were encouraging. So many things that were convicting, which I think is a good thing, right? We want our lives to be the best that we can make them. And so we need to have people come along and say the hard things and say the things that make us really think about our lives and the decisions that we're making. And you were saying before we started that your feedback for this one has just been tremendous. What are people saying about Homestead Tsunami? Yeah, well, I mean, it's only been out for about three weeks, so it's brand new. So, you know, many people have not read it, but the folks who have just say this captures the essence of soul, what our culture needs at this time. The feedback has been really, really encouraging. It's been good. Yeah, let me add my feedback too, because I just was, I mean, I devoured it from start to finish. And I've got just pages and pages of notes here of things that really struck me. And that's what you do with your writing is you take these topics and you help them go into the soul so that it's always there. It's always something that someone is thinking back to and reaching back to. One of the big topics that kind of spanned the whole book is this concept of the lies that were sold and what real freedom really looks like. You said, and this is towards the end of the book, where someone said, I have lots of wealthy friends and none of them is happy. So this lot, these lies that are kind of spun in about wealth and what we're shooting for and that being at home is boring and all of those types of things. And you match that up against this real freedom. Like you say, true freedom and functional thriving grow in mundane participation. <laughs> I mean, like my jaw dropped. <laughs> Can you just talk through what are some of the lies right now? that society culture that they're promoting yeah that a lot of us maybe believe right right well uh yeah there's a lot of them i mean one obviously and and most of them come from um as as you know from the book they come from a place of uh you don't have to worry about this we'll take care of you on this so we have the lie that you don't have to worry about your health the doctor will take care of you you don't have to worry about food, Hershey's and Nestle and Procter and Gamble will take care of you. Mm-hmm. You don't have to worry about education. The public school teachers will take care of you. You don't have to worry about money. The Federal Reserve will take care of you. I mean, you just go down the line. You don't have to worry about uh, knowing how to fix anything because mm-hmm. artificial intelligence is going to give you an R2-D2 robot that will clean your house, start your coffee in the morning and bring you, you know, pickled beets when you want them. We've just been sold this thing that all you have to do is pay your Netflix subscription, watch, you know, football 
and go to your cubicle every day to push numbers into cyberspace for the man and everything else will be taken care of. Hmm. It's presented as the ultimate freedom, right? You know, the ultimate, you don't have to plant garden. You don't have to can green beans. You don't have to, you know, uh, be involved with your children's education and none of this stuff. And then all of a sudden you have things like COVID things like Putin invading Ukraine. Uh, you have black swan events. And suddenly, uh, suddenly you realize that what was promised to free us from mundane task participation are actually shackles that enslave us to a dependency on systems that don't always have our best interests at heart. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. I mean, just unbelievable. What a thing to think about. You say, in the name of convenience and liberation, we enslaved ourselves to a host of dependencies. Wow. So this is the lie, the lie that we could leave behind these domestic drudgeries, you call them, and leave behind these mundane things to pursue exotic activities. I'm like, what is that? You know, what are the exotic activities? Someone else's imagination, someone else's video game world that they've created for us. Mm -hmm. Can you really detail real freedom, real freedom? So one of the things that you talk about that is sort of a measure of real freedom or something to shoot for, which I loved this, is resiliency over efficiency. Resiliency over, I've never thought about this in my life, resiliency over efficiency. And you talked a lot about during COVID how your farm was very resilient. Can you explain what you mean by that? What are we aiming for when we talk about resiliency over efficiency? Yeah, so you know and I know that for the last whatever seven or eight decades as a culture we've worshiped at the altar of efficiency you know efficient manufacturing efficient factory e- efficient education efficient food safety uh, food safety right you know how, how fast can we you know send a chicken through the processing line you know how fast can we crank out drugs it, it's all about speed and efficiency mm-hmm. and what's happened now you know, when Joel Arthur Barker wrote the book Paradigms and basically introduced the term to the world back in the, I think, late 70s, one of his axioms regarding paradigms is that all paradigms eventually exceed their point of efficiency. So what we've had now, again, with these black swan events, we begin to realize that efficiency cannot happen until you have resiliency first. If you don't first have resiliency, there's nothing to be efficient about. And so, you know, during the, yeah, during the uh, increase of this fertilizer, you know, when uh, Putin invaded Ukraine, we laughed on our farm. We don't buy any of that fertilizer. So that's resilience. You know, when, uh, when the store shelves went empty in spring of 2020 uh, and people were panicked because they were afraid we we're going to run out of food, we just laughed because we had freezers full of meat. We had hundreds of quarts of canned goods down in the cellar and, you know, we were fine. Now, we did get a little bit concerned about toilet paper, but um, you know, uh, toilet paper is not the end of the world. I mean, you, you you can you can rip up some rags and rewash them if you need to. All right, so that's what I'm talking about. Resilience is how can you navigate rough waters? The truth is that the larger you are, I, I think I ask in the book. I think I think I ask, does anybody think that as going into 2020, if we had had instead of having a funnel of 300 mega processors bringing food uh, into the America's doorstep. If instead we'd have 30,000 
neighborhood processing facility, you know, from canneries and slaughterhouses and things, bring food mm -hmm. in. Does anybody think that we wouldn't have, we would have certainly been more adapted to the disturbances that were going on if we had had 30,000 uh, small community processors bringing food to our doorsteps rather than 300 mega processors bringing food to our doorsteps. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. So ultimately yeah. in Rocky Shoals, you don't want to be in an aircraft carrier. Uh, you want to be in a speedboat that's adaptable that, where you can move around. That's where true resilience is. And this just goes right along with the sort of like lie versus what's the truth because you say efficiency, right? And it does seem efficient, but then you talk about they slaughtered all these animals that they didn't need to slaughter because they didn't have enough workers or, you know, there's all sorts of pathogens that get in. Or you talked about, there was one interesting part where you had gone to some big farm and they were picking squash and they had some machine, yeah. you know, and mm -hmm. everyone's trying to keep up with the machine, but they're leaving all sorts of good food behind and they called that the cost of scale. So it's actually not efficient. Right. It's another one of those lies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we, we, yeah, we see those just everywhere. And so people who are intentionally thinking through these things start to see, well, you know, where am I going to put my trust? Am I going to trust in the Fed? Am I going to trust in Tyson? Am I going to trust in, you know, Cargill? And what happens is as you start seeing the fragility the ugly edge of fragility in what's been presented as efficiency, you begin realizing, man, I, you know, I'd better not put myself in that dependency, in that position. You start wanting to flee, uh, you know, to run away from that dependency. And of course, that's what's fueling this entire homestead movement of self-reliance and home centricity uh, coming home. It's, in my view, it's just another permutation of the homeschooling movement and the whole, as you've you know started your awareness of getting outside, mm -hmm. you know we've got this sterility culture, yeah. antimicrobial soap, wash everything, and people who know me know I, I drink out of the cow trough, you know, to feed my microbiome, <laughs> and and Finland, you know, Finland now leads the world in showing the difference in immunological function between children that routinely go out in the cow stable with on the dairy and get some cow poop in their in their mouth, you know, because little little toddlers put everything in their mouth, right? Versus mm -hmm. their city cousins who never encounter dirt, never encounter uh, manure and leaves and all the, the stuff that's out in nature. And so you actually have, I think I have a little chapter in the book about uh, the importance of building immunity through close contact with soil, with animals, with all that, uh, you know, based on a lot of the work in Finland. Mm -hmm. So what happens is, as you start thinking about this, people want to, the natural uh, reaction from people like us is, well, I want to flee that. Kind of like, you know, when you first realize the, the problems with, you know, public schools, you want to flee, but you can't flee forever. You can't run away. Someplace you have to stop. Mm -hmm. So what I say is fear makes us want to run, but faith gives us a place to stop. And so the homestead tsunami, the tsunami is the runaway part. The homestead is the faith stop part. This is where you can stop in mm -hmm. faith. <laughs> I just, your books are so entertaining and so thought provoking. I loved this chapter about the immune system. And this is another one that you talk about. If we're talking about lie versus real freedom, the lie is that you should 
always be clean and you should never get a bump or a bruise. And what's happening is that kids can't even sit upright. I mean, this is the part that we're at in culture where kids don't have core strength and they, they don't have the right grip to hold a pencil. They break the lead, they break the pencil, they can't hold it the right way. And so we see that this is a lie and that it is causing issues for our kids. And so I, I have to read this because you do write, people who know me know that I routinely drink out of the cow trough. And then you wrote, this is not a joke. <laughs> so you say, the cows are drinking out of one side and I slurp up the water from the other side. Sometimes a little cow snot floats on the water. I try to stay clear of that, but I do this to give my immune system gentle assaults. I mean, I just love this wording. Your books are so entertaining to read and so thought provoking and just, they're brilliant, gentle assaults on my immune system. You say you purposefully don't wash your hands all that much when you're out in the garden, you're eating with your dirty hands, want your kids to have a robust immune system, let them get filthy often. You say responsible parents should get out to the farm and roll in the pasture and inhale wildness. But one of the things, Joel, that I had never thought about in here, and this is actually one of my favorite sentences in the whole book, is about wounds. And I always think about wounds and in cuts and scrapes as like a childhood thing. You know, you think, oh, you know, you got a kid that's got, we call them summer knees, you know, where their knees are scraped up and bruised the whole summer, right? These are summer knees for kids. But you kind of feel like, well, I become an adult and I become a little more sophisticated and I'm not wearing Band-Aids anymore. But you wrote, and we even spoke in an event and you had a big bandage on one of your fingers. And I, you say, I love coming home bleeding and battered. <laughs> this is one of my favorite sentences. From chainsawing multifloral rows and blackberries as part of a fence cleaning project. I love coming home bleeding and battered. So let's talk about this wounds part, because I do think that most adults are not suffering from any wounds, maybe ever. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot to unpack there. But but again, maintaining those, as I say, gentle assaults, uh, assaults on your immune, you know, uh, the hygiene hypothesis, hygiene hypothesis was signed, I don't know what, uh, 15 years ago by some over 500 health practitioners. And basically the hygiene hypothesis says that our immune system is like a big muscle. It's like a big muscle and it needs, it needs to be exercised. And how do you exercise your immune system? Well, with gentle assaults, you you get a splinter, you what hit your thumb with a hammer, you know you uh, you like I said scrape, you get a scratch from a multiflora rose or a bramble bush, or you're picking blackberries and you get a scratch kind of thing. Those are the kinds of gentle assaults that you normally get, and so those are all exercises. Literally, literally, they are exercises of the immune system. And I think too often we've, you know, we only think about physical exercise, you know, at the gym or, or just, um, you know, physical exercise. But we also have this amazing immune system that needs to be pricked, touched, abraded once in a while. And when you're outside doing outdoor work, if you're going at it with any kind of gusto, you're going to, I mean, even picking up firewood, you know, it's going to scrape your fingers. Think about the calluses from running a mattock or a spade or, or those kinds of things. And so that's the, you know, that's the idea of these, these, these gentle assaults on your immune system to keep it exercised. Wow. 
Wow. And I mean, never, ever had I thought about wanting to get just little wounds here or there. You say, I always have a couple of splinters in various stages of infection. I seldom wear gloves. Just lots to think about. Then every time I go out, I'm like, should I have gloves on? Maybe, you know, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I should be touching all of these different things. This is so interesting. One of the things that you talked about that dropped my jaw was that your son Daniel built his own house when he was 20 years old. It's a wonderful house, solid as a rock. We went out to the woods, cut the trees, and milled them on our bandsaw mill. Wow. So you talk about, no, this is another big lie, that practical skills, meh, you know, those are for someone else. And you have such a compelling argument for practical skills. Daniel obviously is one. Your kids were part of it because you're saying they're getting this real life confirmation from real life people who are saying, wow, that thing you made was amazing. And my library group loved it or my book club. So that's one part of it. And then you also say it endears us to other people because it makes us valuable to others. And I just got chills. I got chills about everybody needs somebody who knows how to do stuff. I got chills when I actually read about your neighbor master mechanic mm. who still came over after he was retired. Mm -hmm. I guess that's a lot of things in one. Well, let's start with your kids. So we talk about kids and their self-esteem and kids are kind of waffling these days, but you had kids, your son built a house, like an actual house when he was 20 years old. Your daughter, there's beautiful things about how you know, she was selling things and she was getting this confirmation from the older ladies that are in your community. Why do our kids need to be learning stuff, learning how to do stuff and knowing stuff? Oh, what a great, that's, it's, that, that probably is, to me, it's one of the most critical aspects of this book because, because Jenny, we have anyone who's, who's working with young people today, youth in the schools, guidance counselors, psychologists, whatever. We have a youth crisis in this culture. We have um, girls with fentanyl. We have uh, boys with bullies. We've got all sorts of, of psycho fentanyl. Teen suicide is through the roof. We have a youth issue in this country. So it begs the question, well, well why? What's the, what's the deal? And again, I, I'm quick to say I'm not a trained psychologist. I don't have a, but from my experience and observation, here's what I think. And you, you can take it or leave it. Okay. It, 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 it's free. So you can take it or leave it. <laughs> uh, what I think is self-worth. All right. I'm going to choose my words carefully. Self-worth comes from successfully accomplishing meaningful tasks, successfully accomplishing meaningful tasks. And one of the problems that our youth today are just um, have such low self-worth is because they've never actually successfully accomplished a meaningful task. All those words are important. In other words, here's the, here's the thing, Jenny. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think, oh, you know, kids have great self-esteem. If you just tell them they're wonderful, pat your little, you know, your little Johnny and your little Jane on the head and say, you know, Johnny, you're a wonderful little boy. Look, that doesn't give self-esteem because a wonderful boy for what? What? Because I'm cute, because I'm here, because I'm in this family. Worth always has to be tied to something. It's kind of, you know, kind of like love. You can't love in a vacuum. Love needs an object. Well, self-worth, it needs an account. It needs an accounting underneath it to lift it up. 
so we call it self-worth, okay? Or by worth something. Well, what what does my that, that thought just struck me? I've never put that together before. That was a brand new uh yeah, we say self-worth. Well, worth means there's got to be some accounting. Well, what's my accounting? Well, you know, what have I done? And that's the idea. So, you know, I think I think it's actually child abuse to deny our kids, you know, deny our kids practical, meaningful tasks and just, you know, let them have screen time all the time, play with their fingers on a screen. And I think our culture, and again, look, I don't want to go back to Charles Dickens, you know, England. Okay. I, I, I get that. But at the same time, I mean, 13, 14, 15 year old young people can do lots of things in the adult world. And they should be encouraged to do that. And parents shouldn't be accused of being child abusive or exploiters when kids are doing meaningful tasks. That's where they get affirmation, self-worth. And then then they also learn what they can do, what they're good at, what they can do. So as they enter adulthood, they've got this track record of accomplishment. Well, I like that. I didn't like that. I was good at that. I wasn't good at that. And, and they, they come into adulthood with a very practical life resume of accomplishment coming in so that suddenly they don't hit 18 and we say, well, launch, well, launch. I never built a rocket. How can I launch if I never built a rocket? You know, right. and, and so that that's the idea. Wow. When the skies open up while others seek shelter, I embrace the rain. Heading to my favorite hike, the raindrops are like a soothing melody, and my vessies ensure each step is dry and comfortable, turning a simple outing into a rather delightful experience. Whenever my kids and I are stepping into a great outdoors adventure, I love wearing Vessi's Stormburst boots to capture the beauty of springtime landscapes. Their robust style is perfect for our nature excursions, adding a little dash of elegance to our outdoor explorations. This spring, transform how you view wet weather with Vessi. Their Dymatex technology makes their shoes not just waterproof, but a stylish barrier against rain and puddles. Whether it's a sudden downpour or a planned seaside walk, Vessi shoes ensure your feet stay dry and comfortable. Embrace the essence of spring with Vessi. From chic city walks to adventurous treks, find the perfect pair for your lifestyle at Vessi.com outside and enjoy an automatic 15% off your first order upon checkout. That's V-E-S-S-I dot com slash outside for 15% off your first order. Some New Year's resolutions seem destined to fail, whether it's making healthier food choices, going to the gym consistently, or trying to get outside more regularly. Lucky for you, I have an easy resolution that we can all make, and it will make your life easier, be kinder to the planet, and transform the way you do laundry in 2024, switching to Earth Breeze. I know what you're thinking. Laundry isn't very fun. Buying a huge, heavy plastic jug and measuring out just the right amount of detergent while getting goo all over the place is annoying. There always seems to be some dripping on the side of the washing machine or on my hands. Thankfully, Earth Breeze heard our cries. Now, Eco Sheets are here to change the game. Unlike liquid, powder, or capsule detergent, Earth Breeze looks like a dryer sheet, but in reality, it's ultra-concentrated laundry detergent. It couldn't be easier. Just throw a sheet in with your laundry and watch it dissolve in any wash cycle, hot or cold. It's also great for traveling. 
EarthBreeze fights everyday stains and odors, giving you an amazing clean every time. Our kids tend to get stains on brand new clothes after wearing them just once, and EarthBreeze does a great job saving us from the stains. The best part is you'll never run out of detergent again. Thanks to EarthBreeze's flexible subscription, you can adjust, pause, or cancel at any time with no hidden fees or penalties. And you can save a whopping 40% when you subscribe and shipping is always free. Switching to EarthBreeze won't only make laundry day easier for you, but also easier on the planet. Right now, my listeners can get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash 1000 hours. That's earthbreeze.com slash 1000HOURS for 40% off your subscription. So, okay, so there's that part of it, right? You're talking about the self-worth piece. And I read this book by a woman named Dr. Michaeline Duclef called Hunt, Gather, Parent. You would think this is interesting. She's traveled around the world and seen other people and how they parent. And she says in almost every other culture, she says they don't praise kids. They don't do it. She says, you'll never hear it. She says, but they do give them a family membership card. And these kids have tasks that they do that contribute to the family, clearly contribute to the family. And so the kids have self-worth because they're doing these worthy things. So super interesting. Then there's the other side of it, which is that if you know things, then you're part of community because people need you. You wrote, and I just love this, practical skills. I've never thought about this. Practical skills never disappoint. Who's disappointed that they know how to do something? No one, right? We're only disappointed at the things we don't know how to do. When we're doing productive, meaningful things, we develop. Well, and then you said, oh, this was actually a really interesting thing because I've thought, well, if I could go back to high school, I wish I would have taken like the auto mechanic class. I wish I would have learned because they had those classes and I didn't take them. I took things that I didn't need to know, but you, you took a class. And I was like, wait, I didn't even really think like I could be taking a class. You took a small engine repair class at a local vocational technical school. Yeah. 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 There, there are all sorts of things available out there that, that we can. I, I took that class, Jenny, you know, long after high school. I was, you know, I was an adult. I was here on the farm and I realized, man, you know, I could really use this skill. You know, we got small engines, you got, you know, lawnmowers, chainsaws, all this stuff. And so I took this class down at the Botech school, you know, as an adult. And there's all sorts of this kind of stuff, plumbing, electrical, diesel mechanics. I mean, in other words, uh, classes, look, it's not like you're going to become a professional at this, but just enough to be handy, to have a skill to know how to do things. So you're not just completely, whatever, bamboozled by even how to uh, put in a screw or hang a door or understand that there's a there is a cutoff valve under the sink. You know, you can cut off the valve and you can take the faucet out. You know, you can do these things. And these are all, you know, skills that add to our value. And they also affirm our need. Every one of us, all if there's one common thing that all humans and and, and we're seeing this right now, you know, with my mother who's going to be a hundred uh, in December. Mm-hmm. And the deficiency here in not being needed. All of us need to feel needed. Mm-hmm. So when a child, fascinating, this this book that you're saying, they don't praise kids. You know what they do? They create a habitat 
where the children feel uh, needed, and that is what gives them worth. Praising kids without accomplishments is empty. It's vapid, and kids know it. Kids know if their praise is deserved or not. And um, I'm not sure I would say don't pray. I've praised our kids a lot, but I've always praised them over accomplishment. I haven't praised them just because they're human. Okay. The, it, the praise is always tied to some sort of, of thing, a deed, of something that they've done. And so, yeah, that's how we continue to be needed. And the more practical things you have, the practical things, you know, think about, you know, at your church or whatever, the guy that can fix everything, you know, the handyman, mm-hmm. man, oh man, doesn't everybody love the guy that can fix stuff? Mm-hmm. You know, or, or the guy that can build stuff, you know, the guy that can make a beautiful rock wall. Those are amazing skills. And f- unfortunately, our culture has relegated all of that visceral participatory skill stuff to the non-intelligent. And this, of course, is, is what has driven Mike Rowe, you know, in his dirty jobs uh, and, and why people love Mike Rowe so much, because he creates affirmation of value to all the blue collar workers and all the people that actually know practical skills ne- ne- weren't necessarily on the, in the, uh, you know, honor society in high school. Wow. And your book just really makes you think about it differently. When you talk about, you say, being that person, the person who knows how to do stuff is the most stable retirement plan of all because it endears you to a lot of needy people. Andy Crouch calls them three plain people. So he talks about most people these days work in two dimensions, Mm -hmm. but you got these people that are out and they're moving their body. He calls them three plain people. My mom said, if you know how to cook, you're always going to have a lot of friends. So it's these practical skills. They never disappoint. What an interesting thing to think about and, and that you could still go and get those skills as an adult. If you missed your chance when you were young, you could still go do that. And you really hit on the community aspect of this. I got chills. You know, you talked about your neighborhood master mechanic and he would still come over once he was retired. You talked about your neighbor that showed you how to use the chainsaw and you love the chainsaw. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you say, we shared, we shared our skills and we shared ourselves. And so that you tear up remembering these people that have come into your life and have taught you things. Yeah. You know, um, so much of the cities and, and, and I, you know, I, I don't think cities are evil, but I'll tell you what, I think it is harder to maintain relationships in cities. We hear this thing, uh, man, I want to get away. I'm going to the country. But actually, uh, if you go to the country, you're not going to be anonymous because the neighbors are going to know your schedule. They're going to know what car you drive. They're going to know, uh, is he up and around in, in the city is an, that if you want to get lost, if you want to be anonymous, Go to the city. E.F. Schumacher writes about this a lot in you know, Small is Beautiful. Developing these skill mentors, these practical vocational uh, mentors is all part of that practical skill community that you develop, especially when you're, you know, when you're homesteading and you're you, you need advice. I mean, how how do you get this screw out? How do you get this bolt off? How do I, you know, how do I weld this piece on that? Every community has these artisan craft kind of people. You know, how do you how do you put in a block wall? And at the end of the day, those bring us to our humanness 
uh, more than just punching numbers into cyberspace for a, mm-hmm. a Fortune 500 company. Mm-hmm. That's really a beautiful part of the book about how those practical skills can bring about community. When you talked about the master mechanic, you say he's been deceased for many years, but hardly a day goes by that we don't remember some shared expertise experience with him. Mm-hmm. What a legacy. It's incredible. What about, um, this is something that I've been thinking about with your book, because we only have so much time. We only have so much time to learn and to grow and to figure things out. So a lot of people who are coming into the homestead tsunami, I would say they might be behind the eight ball or they feel like they're behind, they're running to catch up. And there really is only so much time. They may not ever get to this point where they have a functioning business. So I was really encouraged by your family's story. Your dad started here in the States at 39. You say he was in Venezuela, lost his farm, all sorts of things going on. The story is really interesting. It's in the book, Homestead Tsunami. You say, we left with a couple barrels of possessions and no money. Right. And your dad, you write that your dad wanted, he wanted the farm to support him. He wanted that to be the sole thing, no. but he never got there. No. And so the question is, is it worth it for the sake of our kids and our grandkids if we don't ever get there? Yes, yes. And that is one of the most profound questions that I get all the time because many people, uh, goodness, I did I did a chicken, I did a chicken processing demonstration down at the Homestead Festival in Tennessee last year. Had, you know, I don't know what, 250 so, you know, a bunch of people all you know standing out to see this chicken processing. I was doing it with Dave Schaefer of, of Featherman Plucker fame. And uh, Dave, I didn't ask, he was, he's smart. He's smarter than I am. And he asked the crowd the question, how many of you thought that you would be interested in this when you were 16? Hmm. And in that whole group, Jenny, two hands went up Two. Wow. the point was we were talking to midlifers, mm-hmm. 35 to 45 to 50 years old, who now have kids that they realize are deficient in many of the most salient skills of life. And so here they are attending a class on how to butcher a chicken because they never learned it when they're kids. And their kids are running around at six, seven, eight, nine years old. And they're going to take that skill into adulthood. They're not going to hit 40 and not know how to butcher a chicken. Now, I'm not saying everybody's got to know how to butcher a chicken, but but I, I think it speaks to this to this level. And so my point here is that it's never too late to start a better way, to start a better path. It's never. My dad used to say, the only thing worse than starting late is starting never. Yeah. And I can just hear him saying that over and over again. And so wherever you are in life, if you have a deep level uh, sense that there's got to be a better approach, it's never too late to start. You know, it's kind of like people that back, I mean, I remember in the early homeschool movement back in the early 80s, all right, uh, I'm going way back. Maybe a lot of your listeners weren't even born in 1980, but I can remember very well when people for the first time, you know, today, Homeschool is kind of ubiquitous in the culture. Now, a lot of people don't do it, but most people know about it. It exists. But I remember people whose kids were 14, 15, 16, and the first time they heard about that idea, just even the idea, and some ran with it. Some said it's too late. 
But the ones that that ran with it, that embraced it, many of them were able to pick up a lot of lost time. And so I always encourage people, never think it's too late for you to start a legacy for the next generation. Mm -hmm. It's never too late for that. Yeah, that's what I got out of that part of it. Because you said your dad and mom never made a living from the farm, although your dad desperately wanted to. And yet here you are on your 16th book. It's just one more generation down. And then one generation beyond that, you have a son that's building a home at age 20. And I actually had this highlighted that the garden club lady said to Rachel, oh, you're the one that baked that exquisite pound cake I served my garden club ladies on Thursday. So part of it maybe is just building a legacy and to not be discouraged if we may not make it in our lifetime. And so it's really interesting to read the story there and the behind the scenes. I mean, I think that starting over your life with a barrel of possessions and no money at age 39, <laughs> you said, he I mean, he, he just had tenacity. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So if you, if you can't launch, build the platform so the next generation can launch. That's the idea. Wow. Wow. I just absolutely love that. Okay. Let's talk about another favorite sentence. Here we go. I can't imagine anything as magical as being slobbered over by massive cows. <laughs> <laughs> what a book. You know, you're talking about just the beauty that we find. And I think oh. we're searching for happiness. We're searching for beauty. We're searching for magic. We're searching for something. And you're saying, look, I find it every day. I find it when I almost step on the rattlesnake. I find it when I cut down the tree the wrong way and it knocks out the power grid. And it's like my own fireworks that I've set off. You're saying I find it when I'm laying out in the field with the cows and they lick my face and they sniff me. What's going on here? I mean, is this really true? Yes. Oh, Jenny, let me tell you what. If there is my most soul level place, it is to go out on a summer evening not a winter evening, but a summer evening, um, you know, at dusky dark and just lie down in the field with the cows. And we've got a lot of cows. We've got, you know, it might be a herd of 300. Okay. Uh, And just lie down in the field. And before long, they're going to come up and they're going to be sniffing and they're going to be putting their wet muzzles on you. And, and they will, they will completely surround you. I mean, these, these thousand pound beasts, you know, you're, you're lying on the ground prone and they literally gather like, like a huddle, like a football huddle. Okay. And they're all around you. I have never had one step on me. I've never, you know, cows are herbivores. They don't bite. Now a pig would bite you. Okay. A chicken would peck you, but a cow, they never bite you. They lick at you, they nuzzle you, they move, and and these big, magnificent beasts just in their gentleness, in their gentleness and curiosity. And because, because I have created a place where they feel safe with me, mm-hmm. I feel safe with them. And just the majesty of all of that power, all that poundage, <laughs> all that being so gentle and, uh, I don't know, and soft, soft, all that power being soft. The point is that people, listen, people pay a lot of money all over the world to connect, to connect. There's all sorts of words, to anchor, connect, get in touch with, you know, the phraseology, all these things. 
And, you know, it might be, it might be a hike through the, you know, through a national forest. It might be mountain climbing on Mount Everest, it might, you know, whatever, but people pay a lot of money for this. And the point is that on a homestead, you can walk out the back door and immerse yourself in the majesty and beauty of nature without spending a dime, without getting on a plane, without going through TSA, without a passport, you know, w- without anything. And we get to walk around the edge of a, of a pond and look at the salamanders and try to grab a frog before it jumps in. And, and or, or, you know, in the spring when the creek is gurgling, you know, the little uh, creek, you, you take some stones. And I mean, what is more fun than a kid going down to shorts and going out to the creek and spending an afternoon with a couple of friends building a rock, a little rock dam, you know, it might only be 12 inches high, but man, you can watch that water back up and man, look back at that dam, you know, and all of that activity and magnificence and majesty and mystery of nature is with you by default, is by default. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to pay for it, go anywhere with it, and you can do it anytime you want to. That is a profound ability. And and if I may just add one thing beyond that, I talk in the book about the rural and urban and how in the urban environment, you're surrounded completely, you're surrounded all the time by things that people did, by things, you know, asphalt, streetlights, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, buildings and cars and everything. It's all, it's all a human construct. But out on a homestead, you're surrounded all the time by things that God made. And I think that therein lies a, that is a psychological, spiritual, mental change and why people in the city have to get in the country and get away. You know, they got to connect and anchor and and, all that. Whereas here on a homestead, we are literally embraced every moment by a tree that we didn't make, by plants we didn't plant, by, by, you know, deer and possums and cows and chickens by things that are way beyond what we could do. And I think that that has a big effect on our, you know, our mental and emotional uh, psych state and how we, you know, how we view things. Sure. It's like our satisfaction with life. It's always there. There's always, instead of having to chase it. And you had told this amazing story about seeing a deer out on the ice and the, you know, the deer struggling to stand up and it's this whole story. And then you say at the end of it, this happened 50 years ago, 50 years ago, and you still remember it. So it's these moments that happen that are very simple. I mean, 50, to remember something for 50 years, but it's that striking and that interesting and that engaging that it sticks with you. This was one of my favorite sentences in the book. You say, the most enjoyable things are often the ones you don't even plan. They just occur because you're in a place that's conducive to life and life carries its own dynamic spontaneity and hilarity. Mm. What a statement. Be in a place that's conducive to life. I just thought that was so powerful. Everyone wants to start their year off on the right foot. And for me, that means making sure I'm eating well and have enough energy to do everything I want to do. But I'm not going to run to the butcher every day to get a fresh cut of quality meat. That's why Good Chop is such a lifesaver for our family. Good Chop offers fully customizable boxes of high quality meat and seafood delivered to your door on your schedule. 
Their products are vacuum sealed and frozen at peak freshness, so you can stock your freezer and cook when you want. We had a somewhat last minute get together recently, and it was so incredibly convenient to just head to the freezer and pull out a couple bags of Good Chops hamburger patties to whip up some burgers quickly. They were so delicious. Besides being delicious, it's important to know it won't cost you a fortune either. Good Chops price per meal starts at just $3.74. Go to goodchop.com slash outside120 and use code outside120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. That's code outside120 at goodchop.com slash outside120 for $120 off. Goodchop.com slash outside120 code outside120. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Question, what's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Read a few chapters of that book, start painting that guest bedroom, tackle that pile of laundry, play a card game with your kids. A lot of us spending our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. If you're feeling stuck, therapy is something that can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Therapy is a wonderful thing. It can help you learn positive coping skills or show you how to navigate properly setting boundaries. With BetterHelp, it's easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try and visit betterhelp.com slash 1000 hours to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash 1000 hours. And then this leads to this concept of things being dependable. And I hadn't thought of this before, that people are struggling. The world is topsy-turvy. That was, I think, the phrase that you used. Helter-skelter. These are great words. When all around is helter-skelter and topsy-turvy, we can go to a place that isn't spinning out of control. We don't have to wonder if the cows will come to hay or if the chickens will scratch for worms or if the tomatoes will produce tomatoes. And I remember my grandma, she grew up on a farm in West Virginia, and I remember her saying that during the Great Depression that she didn't even really know it was going on because they were just home on their farm and things continued as they were. So can you talk about the foundation that that would give a person that when all these things around the news and all of these things, but you still have all of these things in your life that still work and move forward and just give a, a strong sense of security, I would guess. Well, and, and, and Jenny, a strong sense of constancy, constancy. Mm-hmm. We, it, it, man, if you watch the news feed, uh, you can quickly get frustrated, angry, discouraged, and maybe all the above, okay? Because things, you know, the, the dollar is losing in value. Uh, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, your party either wins or loses. And, you know, the, 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 there's this, this constant flux. But on a homestead, on a homestead, the tomato never produces a pear and the apple tree never produces grapes. And there is a constant, there's a constancy in the life. And part of that too is just the cows are, there's not a day that I go out to the cows to move them to a new paddock when they say, you know, we're not interested in a new paddock today. Why don't we just stay in the old one? They never do that. You know, they are dependable. They are completely dependable. Mm -hmm. And, And we live in a time 
where so many institutions, our day today is marked by a lack of trust in old institutions. You used to be able to trust the university. You could trust uh, you know, a bureaucrat even. You could trust a politician to be honest. You could trust the banks uh, or, or the, you know, the powers that be to to not debase the money supply or tax you out of it. You know, you, you, you could, but, but today no, nobody trusts CEOs. I mean, goodness, um, much of our culture doesn't trust police anymore. So we are in a crisis of trust, but on the homestead, I can trust those chickens to look for worms every day, to be happy when I come out, to give me a couple eggs and when I come out. I can trust that if I, you know, uh take care of the carrots, they're going to grow and I'm going to have carrots. And I can trust that if I go down to the pond, there's going to be salamanders in it and frogs and probably a blue heron's going to come in and land on the pond. These are constants and in a in a time of unprecedented flux and inconstancy and distrust. These are all things that we can trust. And I think it does good for our soul, does good for our soul to encounter daily things that don't change. I mean, think about, um, you know, you're, you're going to, you're going in the city and the whole thing about, can I make that light? Will the light change? You know, uh, the, the only constant is that things are not constant. Uh, traffic patterns, man, can I, you know, is it, am I going to get in a traffic jam? Uh, I got to beat rush hour, you know, and, and, and even the constants are all about helter skelter and trying to beat the inconstancy. Whereas here, we're not trying to beat the frenzy of it. It's just there. And that is a very, it's a satiating place for our spirit when all around is frenetic. I mean, these are the things that when I say, like, I never thought about that, never thought about it. And a concept like that will stick with me. Like, that's a benefit that you can't measure. Mm -hmm. And that maybe no one's ever said that before, that one of the benefits is just, I mean, I like when you wrote, you said, when shocks come along and the headlines scream hysteria, our farm scarcely bobbles. Mm. And we keep on going. Yeah. And you talk about that the pond still holds water. And so to have that dependability both for yourself and for your children, for your family. So that's a huge thing. And then let's just hit one more thing because we are, you know, you said you wrote this book for three different people. Mm -hmm. And one is for the one who's, you know, on the fence and, and should I take the leap? And so this is a book that just lays out all of these benefits that you wouldn't even think of. And then you've got the one who's a, a skeptic and a, a friend. And so you might want to give that to them so they understand you better. We're in the middle category where we were wide eyed and really very influenced by you to we have a, a small homestead here, if I could call it that, mm -hmm. uh, where like none of our garden produced anything this year and bindweed arrived, which we didn't have last year and I didn't know about. And, and also squash bugs came this year and we've never had those before. And and so you're constantly sort of on your toes. And you wrote, so you're doing it poorly, big deal. Mm. And you have this encouragement that, okay, like, I mean, our stuff is looking kind of ratty and, you know, it's not maybe what we thought it would be. But your encouragement is to keep going, keep trying. Why should we do that? Why? What, yeah. What's the worth there? <laughs> well, the, the word there is, is, um, is mastery 
mastery doesn't happen overnight. You know, Michael Jordan used to say that like for every basket he made in a game, he missed a thousand baskets in practice. Uh, one of my favorite things kind of become a, a bit of a, you know, a brand thing for me is this, uh, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly first. You know, yeah. we, we, we live with this, with this uh, thing in our head, you know, some elder probably told us at one time, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. Well, yeah. the truth is, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly first, because we don't, we don't do anything right first. We don't talk well, we don't walk well, we don't garden well, we don't do a lot of things well. And that that's the whole idea. You know, we're in the we're in the football season, right? So it's all about reps. How many reps did you get in this week? It's about repetition, you know, running those plays, repetition. So how do you become uh somebody who knows how to deal with bindweed and squash bugs and those kind of things? Well, you repeat the garden. You don't give up, you don't fold. You you say you, you know, you brush yourself off and you pick yourself up and you say, All right, let's read about squash bugs. Let's see what some master gardeners say about it. And let's deal with that. And and so next year you do better with squash bugs, but you've got, you know, corn earworm. So now we, you know, deal with that. You know, that's just the way it is. And so the biggest, um, you know, one of the biggest problems among these new homesteaders is coming with these, you know, building these castles in the in the sky, these fantasies, these dreams. And it's listen, I'm, you know, I'm the world's biggest dreamer. Okay. So I have no problem with dreams. But at the same time, you got to realize life is a slog, too. There's a lot of slog. And so while we have our kids and we imagine them as these really productive, cool kids and even imagine grandkids, between that dream, there's a lot of dirty diapers to change. And there's a lot of snotty noses and late nights and thermometers in the mouth. What's your temperature? And that's the slog. And that's reality. But you don't you don't quit on your kids because. They've, you know, got a fever and you don't quit on your garden. You don't quit on your cow. You don't quit on your, your chainsaw because it doesn't start today. You, you know, you slog through and it is in the other side of that slog. When you look back, it won't be in a season. It, it might not be in a year. It might not be for five or 10 years, but you look back and, and say, wow, we've mastered this. We've mastered that. We've mastered this. And then guess what? you become a mentor. And that's where the real payback comes because the next generation comes and says, dad, how do you do this? Mom, how do you do this? And to have those practical, visceral skills and memories to share and lead then is what powers you through your waning years when you might not feel quite as needed for the actual brute work and the physical work, but you are needed to steer, guide, and help that next generation. Wow. Wow. Joel, what a deeply meaningful book. I could sit and talk to you about it for a month. I mean, maybe more for years. There are so many concepts in here that have dug themselves deep into my soul that I'm pondering, I'm thinking about often. And really even just this one about that your father did not see. He's not here to see the legacy. This is your 16th book. I mean, I would imagine he could never have imagined the, the devastation at age 39 to have to leave the country, to come back to the United States and to start over in a, in a barren land mm -hmm. and here to see what you're doing. And, and that is something that has stuck with me too, that you say, just keep going. 
you are if we keep going the way we're going we'll end up where we're headed and our kids will benefit and other people our community our extended community will benefit so homestead tsunami good for country critters and kids phenomenal book the one that's next on my list is family friendly farming because uh, I haven't read that one yet and I just always so appreciate your time and appreciate your wisdom appreciate your candor your phenomenal entertaining writing and the things you bring to life that I don't think anyone else is talking about so thank you so much Joel I really appreciate it thank you Jenny what a delight to be with you thank you very much Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts.